gospel reading this morning is from Mark, the 10th chapter. As Jesus started on the way, someone ran up to him and fell on bended knee before him, asking, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except one, God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your parents. The petitioner answered, Rabbi, all these I have kept since my childhood. Jesus looked at and loved the one before him. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go, sell all that you have, give it to those who are poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At Jesus' response, the one who asked the question became crestfallen and went away grieving, having many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed at his words. Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more stunned and said to themselves, who then can be helped? Looking at them, Jesus said, for humans, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, Rabbi, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, Yes, indeed, no one who has left home or siblings or parents or children or land for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, siblings, parents, children, and land. Persecutions, too. And in the age to come, everlasting life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the gospel of the Lord. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. Is it one you've asked? Maybe not in those words, but maybe, am I good enough for God? Can I ever be forgiven for this horrible thing I did? Does God really love me? Maybe you, like me, have anxiety and a tendency toward people-pleasing, and you find yourself worrying Did I do enough? Maybe you learned the Ten Commandments in confirmation class and despaired when you realized you couldn't possibly keep them all. Especially if you read that the one that seems the easiest, thou shalt not murder, right, is not just about not literally killing people, but about never hurting anyone and helping our neighbor in every need and thought, is that something I can really do? Maybe grace seems a little too good to be true, a little too hard to believe. And Jesus knows all of that. So when this person comes asking Jesus, falling on bended knee, desperate for the answer, anxious about what to do to please God, we read that Jesus looks at this person with love. 
Jesus meets this petitioner right where they are, knowing their depth of faith and says, you know the commandments. Yes. Yes, I do. I'm a rule follower. I am good at it. But surely this person is asking because they suspect there's more to it. They're ready for more. And maybe they even think they'll be good at it, whatever it is, since they've kept the commandments thus far. But sell everything you have and give the money away? This was not the answer they were expecting. So although Jesus gave this answer in love, it is almost impossible to receive. The petitioner is crestfallen, we read, and goes away grieving. This command is just too hard to follow. The interesting thing about this whole exchange, though, is that word inherit. Think about inheritance. In order to receive an inheritance, you don't actually do anything, do you? Your parent or grandparent or other relative or mentor or friend has to decide to leave you something of theirs, and then they have to die. But you, the person doing the inheriting, you don't actually have a role in it. So tucked into the question is the answer. The answer that Jesus eventually gets around to. For humans, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Inheriting eternal life, then, is something God does for us. God decides, and we simply receive it. If only our anxious friend had stuck around just a little longer. Although Jesus does issue this petitioner a challenge, it is not a command necessary for earning anything from God. And part of this challenge is wrapping our minds around a whole new way of thinking about just what it is that God offers. You probably noticed this word kingdom in this reading. And maybe some of you have come across that before, but I'm guessing for a good number of us, it's new. And you might be able to guess that it's an alternative to the word kingdom, as in the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's important that we talk about God's kingdom, because Jesus' reign is one that counters empire and overturns hierarchies. And we need the reminder that this makes following Jesus a powerful political statement. That Jesus' reign and its ethic of love are more powerful than any empire in Jesus' time or ours. But other times, using this imperial language actually gets in the way of our understanding when Jesus explains what God's reign is like. And I think that's the case in this context. So in this text from Mark, Jesus addresses the disciples as children, And elsewhere, we know that Jesus calls many people siblings and overturns expectations about how one might relate to family and who one might consider to be family. So the Mujerista theologian who helped to coin the term kingdom, Ara Maria Isasidias, explains that the word provides a description of liberation within an interconnected community, seeing God's movement emerge from the family God makes. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is promoting in this text. 
Jesus is reframing the whole idea of a kingdom because God's kingdom is nothing like the empires of the first century or those of the 21st century that are ruled by wealth and power. In God's kingdom, we are liberated from the capitalist structures that lead us to hoard wealth and power. We are freed and challenged to expand our understanding of who our family is. So my extended family lives in a rural community in the Alleghenies, where we have a small family farm. We raise cattle and a variety of crops, and it is a business, but it's always been more of a passion project, especially for my grandpa and my uncle, than it ever was a profitable operation. So for instance, when my mom and her siblings were growing up, my grandpa worked at a brick plant to support his family and his farming hobby. So needless to say, most people in their community are not wealthy. When I was young, there was an older couple named Carl and Teresa that lived across the road from the farm. And they were some of my grandparents' closest friends. Carl would come across the road and pick corn from our field, and Grandma would send us kids over the other way to help pick and snap the beans from Carl's garden. They shared resources and labor, and although I'm told Grandma might have charged them a flat rate for corn for the entire season, that rate was set in 1968 and never changed. So it was more a token than anything else. Other than that, I'm fairly confident they never exchanged money. If I had ever asked, I'm sure my grandma would have just said, that's what you do. That's how you take care of your neighbors. Despite their relatively limited financial means, the two families shared a generous community ethic. And I know many families who operate similarly. Maybe your family does too. So within a family, whatever form that family takes, people tend to be fairly generous. When it comes to the people we love most dearly, we tend to be inclined to share, to give freely of ourselves, and to offer whatever sort of help and support we can, even at the expense of our own comfort. But for some reason, when we move beyond that inner circle, we have more trouble with that. So when we hear Jesus say, sell all that you have, give it to those who are poor, we tend to hear it with a scarcity mindset. How can I get rid of everything I have? Doesn't giving everything away just make me poor too? What if I need it? But Jesus promises that we are welcomed into God's family, a kingdom, where everyone instead has that community-oriented abundance mindset that I first observed in my grandparents' relationship with Carl and Teresa. It's not that we have to give everything away in order to earn God's love, because it's an inheritance, which we can't control. But being welcomed into God's family comes with the challenge to understand people around us as our family, including, and perhaps especially, those people who really, really challenge us. And for this person who came to Jesus, it seems like those people may have been the ones who weren't in their same social class. And I know often that's the case for us as well. How many of us have passed someone on the side of the road with a sign that says, homeless, please help, and pretended we didn't see them? 
How many of us have heard the news recently about the tragic deaths at Rikers Island or the horrific treatment of Haitian migrants in Texas and thought, I can't be worried about that. I have enough worries of my own, and besides, I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But when someone we dearly love is in crisis, we will go so far out of our way to care for them, dropping everything to get them whatever help they need. If they're being hurt, whether by another person or by a corrupt system, we will get righteously angry on their behalf and do everything in our power to solve the problem. So the challenge here is to expand our scope of who we think about in that way. If that person we might have ignored on the side of the road is our family, are we more motivated to overhaul the system that leaves so many people unhoused in this country? If those people incarcerated at Rikers Island are our family, are we going to be more willing to fight for decarceration and advocate for a more holistic mental health care system? If Haitian refugees are our family, are we going to be more willing to advocate for more gracious and loving immigration policies? When Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to those who are poor, it's not about donating out of our abundance to good causes and feeling warm and fuzzy about it. It's about treating all people as our family and loving God and other people more than we love our wealth. Jesus knew that this particular person struggled with that, and it's a struggle many of us face too. We read in the text from Amos also that the people of Israel had the same struggle. They trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain. So if you feel challenged by this text, you're in good company. The good news is, as we heard from Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus looks at us, fallen on our knees in our anxiety, and loves us. We, too, are invited to approach with boldness, and we can be confident that when we do, we will be met with both liberation and challenge. Thanks be to God.